As we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word back to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. And we'll commence our reading there at verse 11. Matthew 2, and starting there at verse 11. Hear once again the word of our God. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And Ramah, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word. And may he bless it to our hearing this morning. Well, as we come to our text this morning, which is really just these three verses, verses 16 to 18 of Matthew 2, you remember that we leave Christ in the previous verse in Egypt. We leave Christ as he becomes a refugee, as he goes into exile, as he goes into that place that symbolized the affliction of the people of God of old. We leave Christ as he takes upon himself the likeness of the church under age. And then the inspired historian turns our attention back to Bethlehem. He doesn't tell us at all 
where Joseph, Mary, and Christ settled in Egypt. He doesn't even tell us how long they were in that country. Instead, he turns under the Spirit's direction our, our focus back to Bethlehem. In fact, he takes us back not only to Bethlehem, but to Herod's palace. And not even just to Herod's palace, but to Herod himself, to his own heart, to his own processes of thought. And then we're told that in Bethlehem, Herod had ordered this atrocity. We know so very little about Christ's childhood, but we do know this. We know the cruelty of Herod after Christ's departure from the land. Now, beloved, that is, of course, significant, and really our time this morning will be taken up with trying to understand why this moment is so significant that it's handed down to us through the centuries by God. But, but there is another sense that makes this, difficult, this text just very difficult. In fact, you could say there are three things that make these three verses difficult. There is the historicity of the text itself. And what I mean by that is what we read of here, the atrocity that we read of, is, is not a fantasy. This is not an allegory. This is not a metaphor. This is an atrocity that took place in history. And if you consider it as it is history, if you consider this moment and this cruelty as it actually happened in the past, then you'll understand why this is a difficult text. If you really meditate on the historicity of this moment, beloved, this is one of the most challenging texts to approach in Scripture. This is a pinnacle of cruelty that for most of us it's very hard to fathom. But if the atrocity is not the only reason that makes this difficult, there is, of course, the issue that you run into in verse 18. There again, like our text last Lord's Day morning, you have the gospel writer citing part of the prophets that seems to be speaking about something other than what Matthew is writing about. In other words, Jeremiah seems to be talking about an event that's very much contrary to the one that Matthew says has been fulfilled. There seems to be a disparity, in other words, between God's prophet and God's evangelist. That's one difficulty. But the third difficulty, and this is perhaps the most difficult to overcome, is just the fact that this is so familiar to us. We know this text. We know, as we do the birth narratives in both Matthew and in Luke, we know these texts well. But as I've said to you before, beloved, that becomes a minefield in itself, doesn't it? The more you and I think we understand the text, the more, well, we think that we can retrace it with our minds without error, the more we think we've really internalized the Word of God. But the reality is, beloved, what we need to do with this text is not simply to know its historical aspects. There are truths here that need to penetrate our hearts. There are deeper things here uh, that descend not just into the mind, but into our very breasts. Now, as we look at this text then, as we seek to understand it in, in light of these difficulties, take just the event itself. The word of God reads, Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. 
and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, etc. I want you to notice the word mocked there. The Gospel writer tells us pointedly that in Herod's assessment, as the wise men, as the magi, have diverted their course and gone back to their country without visiting Herod, Herod interprets that as though they had mocked him. Herod's interpretation of this is as though they were making light, making fun of Herod himself. That's his interpretation of the situation. But then secondly, you'll notice this too. The man becomes exceedingly wroth. The word in the original is he has become wroth to the point of being without measure. There is no limits here to Herod's anger. He sees himself personally affronted and his response is of the highest kind of indignation. He is in a seething rage in this verse. And that then explains, does it not, what you have in what follows. Having been personally affronted, being a man filled with rage, he then becomes a man of carnage. He slays those children in Bethlehem. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, and certainly we'll consider this later, as you look at this text, in light of what you have in verse 10, you see again the stark contrast between the wise men, the magi, and Herod, don't you? The magi are a people who are exceedingly, that's our word, who are exceedingly rejoicing when they find that thing that will draw them to Christ. Herod, when he's personally affronted, is exceedingly wroth. The parallel shouldn't miss us. These two kinds of men are in view. Some are exceedingly rejoicing in their Christ. Others are exceedingly wroth and filled with violence. But then as you come to verses 17 and 18, we're told that this event has significance beyond Bethlehem, beyond even the history of the first century. It has significance that takes us all the way back to the prophet Jeremiah. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet, by Jeremy the prophet in Ramah, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, etc. And so, like our previous text, as Matthew writes this history of the life of Christ, he sees here not just a timeline, but he sees here that these events have significant, deep theological significance. These are events that really in terms of the whole course of human history, have incredible bearing, are incredibly weighty. And he says that in this moment then, in this moment, in this, in this really, the, the fruition of Herod's anger, something has been fulfilled that was promised to the church under age centuries beforehand. This is a moment of eschatological significance, a moment that, that really tells us much about the whole purpose and course of humanity. Of course, the question is, how do we understand this moment then? How do we understand this moment in light of the prophecy that Matthew cites? Well, beloved, as you look at this text, obviously, the first point that we have to keep in front of us is that Matthew is showing us that Christ has been indeed miraculously delivered from Herod's rage. When Herod, when, sorry, when the Magi 
and Joseph were warned against Herod, here this text proves the warning was well-grounded. And of course it was, it was from the Lord. And here in this text, all that we find is historically, historically, the warning was well-merited. But there's something beyond that, isn't there? Here, as I've just said to you, the Gospel writer sees here fulfillment. He says here that Jeremiah 31, verse 15, has been fulfilled in this moment, in this miraculous deliverance of Christ, and in the carnage that falls upon Bethlehem. Now, what do we make of that? When Calvin, for instance, looks at Jeremiah 31, he says this. He says, it is certain that the prophet describes the destruction of the tribe of Benjamin, which took place in his time, that is, the time of the Babylonian exile. Calvin says, when you look at Jeremiah 31, it's very clear that the prophet has in view, principally, the destruction of Benjamin that took place whenever Babylon came from the north. Now the question then is, if that's the case, and most would agree with Calvin, then how can we understand this text being somehow fulfilled in the destruction that falls upon the children in Bethlehem? How can it be the case that the text in Jeremiah 31 seems very much to indicate an event that was fulfilled in the exile, but here the gospel writer tells us it was fulfilled in the life of Christ centuries later? Well, there is a resolution to this. What you have in Jeremiah 31 is promised destruction. Promised destruction that would come upon Benjamin in his day. Promised destruction that Jeremiah himself would see. But you also have there destruction that foreshadows yet another form of destruction. In other words, you have in the destruction of Benjamin in Jeremiah's day by the swords of the Babylonians... You have there really a foreshadowing of the very destruction that you have in our text. Uh, David Dixon puts it this way. Jeremiah foretells that as the captivity of the ten tribes had once made the state of Israel as it were their mother to mourn, so should the calamity of Israel wrought by Herod make that state to mourn again. You have one destruction that is promised by the prophet that will be fulfilled in his day, that is also a foreshadowing of the very moment that occurs in our text this morning. Now, beloved, if that's the case, what do we find? Well, we find that one atrocity then has foreshadowed another. You have one great and dismal moment of Israel's history, of Judah and Benjamin's history, anticipating a moment, really, in which Jesus Christ would walk the earth. Now, holding all of that together, beloved, what do we see? Well, first of all, if we remember here that this all takes place after Christ has gone into exile for an indefinite period of time, we don't know how long he was in Egypt, then we see here that the visible church in this day, the church underage in the first century, as soon as Christ was exiled, fell into incredible affliction. Christ goes into exile, goes into, goes into a form of suffering in the likeness of his own suffering people, and in the meantime, the church underage 
Yes, defecting, yes, as corrupt as it was, but still the church underage, no less. She faces affliction. But you also see this too, don't you? Just as we saw last time we were together, Herod's malice would not only affect Christ. It would not only be Christ who would go into Egypt and take upon himself all of the dismal exigencies that a refugee might have. No, Mary and Joseph themselves must also go into exile. They themselves must also suffer. But in our text this morning, we're also told this. That it's not only the case that that family in Egypt would suffer because of Herod's malice against Christ. Here we have historically a picture that really because of Herod's hatred for the Redeemer, the visible church in that time must also be plunged into affliction. But the common denominator, the point that threads all of these things together, is Herod's malice. It is Herod's hatred for Christ. Considered even simply only as a contender to the throne that he pretends to hold. Or considered indeed as, as he is the son of God and redeemer of his people. In either case, Herod's hatred against Christ, the writer tells us very pointedly, is really the cause of all. It is the efficient cause, the instrument that would bring about all of these events. And if we keep that before us, then, beloved, this text is significant because he tells us one very basic thing. It shows us that hatred for Christ instigates violence. Hatred for Christ instigates violence against self, against society, and against saints. Take that first point, that point that perhaps is the one that's least least clear to us. This malice that you find in, in Herod, this hatred that's described for us here in verse 16, is really violence against himself. I want you to notice, as we already noted before, Herod is upset. Herod is driven to a point of tumultuous rage. He is seething in his anger. And he is so angry, he is so driven, mad by what he thinks has been done to him as a personal affront. He is so driven to this that he cannot even think clearly. He can't reason rightly. Just for a moment. Well, it entertain the thought, if Herod had been thinking sanely, and he had realized that his plans had been frustrated, that he was not able then to destroy the Messiah as he had originally intended, what should a reasonable man conclude from that? A reasonable man should conclude that God in his providence has restrained his hand from sinning. Yes, Herod had already sinned by being duplicitous with the wise men, but if he was thinking as he ought to have been thinking, he could have, as you see even in the Old Testament rulers did, they could see the hand of God restraining them from committing a greater evil. But that's not how Herod reasons. His hatred, his malice against Christ, his malice against one who might overthrow himself, By the way, Herod, you remember an Edomite who had no right to the throne of Judah. 
that might overthrow his rule. His, Herod for that, his hatred for that one is so great that it blinds him to all of this. He doesn't think at all as he ought to think that he's been restrained from committing a greater evil. But beloved, you also see this here, don't you? That the man in verse 16 appears very much a self-destroying man. He's committing soul-destroying sins. The man here in this text is giving himself over quite willingly to his own rage. So much so that he's going to sentence the death Sentence the deaths of those who did not deserve it. He will use the sword, the civil sword, to enact capital punishment against those who had never incurred its guilt. That's the Herod that we find in our text. And so what do we find? Beloved, we find a man who out of his malice is quite willing to commit all kinds of soul-destroying sin, quite willing to invite and welcome with more and more zeal the wrath, the judgment of God. In other words, beloved, what you have in this picture is a man who fulfills everything we're told in Proverbs 8. You remember there, Christ speaking says thus, He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me Love death. In real time, and as a historical figure, that is precisely what you find in our text. Here is a man who hates Christ, and here is a man who will go to soul-destroying lengths in his malice. Now what does that teach us? Oh, beloved, holding all of these things together teaches us, doesn't it, that hatred for Christ does violence against the soul. It does violence against the soul. It makes men beastly. It makes men the monster that you see even in our text. But I think before we even understand that, don't we? We we have to go back and we have to ask the question, well, what is this hatred? What is hatred for Christ? When we look at at Matthew 2, we see a man who is, of course, broadly regarded as one of the most monstrous men of the first century. And so when we look at this text, we assume, well, that's really just how a monster behaves. That's how a tyrant behaves. But not everybody's a tyrant. This is an exceptional case. But beloved, remember the root of all of this. Remember that this is a man, an Edomite, who has no interest in the things of God, who would only worship Christ by profession and duplicitously that he might destroy him. If we remember him that way, then we understand, I suppose, a bit better the root of this hatred. The scriptures put it this way. This hatred emanates thus, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. Christ puts it this way, of famously, he that is not with me is against me. And you see this, don't you? 
even as the apostles described the unbelieving mind and the unbelieving heart. The carnal mind is enmity against God. In Romans 1, the world is concluded largely as being haters of God. Suddenly, beloved, if you hold all of those texts together, Herod does not seem so unique a monster as he might at first appear, does he? The Herod that we see here certainly commits atrocities that few others in human history have. But what was the spring, the fount of all of that violence? Beloved, he was numbered among those whose minds were at enmity with God. He was one who hated the light, would not come to it. He's simply those described as a hater of God. And you see then, beloved, what is ultimately the root source? Well, of course, it is man's depravity. But it is man's depravity as it is manifested through his rejection of Christ. Here you have a man, a man in his unbelief, who is quite capable, because of his wrath, his malice against Christ, to commit all kinds of violence. If we hold that in front of us, as I've just said, friend, Herod appears very much, very much less the enigmatic monster and far closer to home than maybe we'd be more comfortable recognizing. But we see this in this text, that this is a man who is a hater of God, an unbeliever. We see here, beloved, that he is one who, as we've already said, fulfills what Christ had promised. Those who hate him hate life. Those, as Proverbs tell us, who sin against him wrongs their own soul. As you look at this text, some would say, some have postulated that in verse 19, Herod's death is almost instantaneous. After he commits this atrocity, some ancient commentators have argued that Herod immediately died. As this expression of his hatred for Christ manifest takes form in this moment, the judgment of God is welcomed and Herod perishes. Now, beloved, if we take that, or even if we keep in mind that Herod will die shortly thereafter at some stage. We see that this is certainly true, that he that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul. Herod had the scriptures in front of him. He had the word of God and the scribes before him, even so much so that they could tell him where Christ would be born. But for all of his getting, for all of the understanding that he had at his disposal, He was not obviously instructed, was he? No, because according to Proverbs, this is how one is instructed. He that heareth reproof getteth understanding, and the fear of the Lord is instruction of wisdom. Now, if we go back to how the writer there begins, he tells us that those who refuse instruction hate their own soul. And what is instruction? It is the fear of God which is only available to sinners through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kind of fear that the Proverbs has in view. 
And so Herod, though he has all the means of grace in front of him, is a hater of God, no less. And so the Proverbs say, he hates himself. He destroys his own soul in his malice against Christ. As Christ puts it to the Pharisees, you will not come to me that you might have life. You despise life itself because you will not come to me. Herod, in his unbelief, in his rejection of the Christ that at least is before him on the printed page, Herod's rejection of Christ has led him to all kinds of soul-destroying sin. And let me remind you, beloved, that is every unbeliever. Every unbeliever is included in this. Every unbeliever is described in the Scriptures as those, again, as Christ himself says, as those that hate that hate him and who love death. Beloved Herod is not is not so remote a case as we might think. In fact, the writer here gives us a picture of what resides in the heart of every human who is outside of Christ. Here you find a man who in his malice will vent his hatred against Christ, even against his own soul, even to his own soul's destruction. And beloved, if you are in Christ this morning, you recognize that all of these ways in which the heart was described, it described yours as well. If you are in Christ this morning, you may not have committed all of the sins and their aggravations that Herod did. But you certainly had the same fountain in your own breast. You certainly were capable of the same kinds of atrocities. Because you bore the same hatred against God and his Christ by nature. Beloved, as we look at this text, all that we can say, can't we? To the believers that such were some of you. Such for some of you. But that brings us to a second point. We see Herod giving himself over to all of these soul-destroying sins because of his hatred for Christ. But obviously that's not all. You see here that he gives the order for all of the children under two years of age to be slain in Bethlehem. Now he becomes a man violent against society. Now the Proverbs tell us, mercy and truth preserve the king, and his throne is upholden by mercy. He that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. Certainly that's Herod, is it not? A man who is quite given to all kinds of cruelty. And here the Proverbs say that really undercuts his status as king, even though he was himself a pretender from the start. Here you have Herod doing quite the opposite of what a man in authority ought to do. Here you have Herod functioning contrary to his calling, or what he pretends to be his calling as a magistrate. Caesar Augustus, by no means an illustrious ruler. When he responded to this very moment, he said, it was better to be Herod's hog than Herod's son. Such was Herod's cruelty. Even from a Roman perspective, it was beyond, beyond calculation. And you see here a man then, you see a man in this moment 
doing quite the opposite of what he should be doing if he held his office rightly. What you see in this text, as its source is still hatred for Christ, is that this invites violence in all sides and in all society. Herod, Herod, as Socrates put it, has taken pride as a herdsman in thinning his own herd. Uh, Beloved, you find here that his hatred for Christ breeds violence through all of humanity. Now, as we look at the text that we read in Matthew 10, we have the words from Christ saying negatively, I came not to send peace, but a sword. Later on, he says, I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And so what you find here is that Christ is saying very pointedly, if you're expecting peace with my first advent, you're thinking wrongly. That was never my calling in the first place. My calling in the first place is to send a sword. But the sword that Christ sends is not of his own doing, if you like. The sword, as you read in Matthew 10, very pointedly is this. The sword that comes, comes because of the wicked and their response to him. And their response to him really touches, and this is the point of the text, it touches the very fabric of human society. Their malice against Christ will rend the most fundamental structures of humanity, even the home. That's what Christ is saying. Their malice against him will sever even those ties that are strongest by nature. That's what Christ means in Matthew 10. And now look at our text in light of that. Herod, because of his malice against Christ, even though nature itself would say this is an act of cruelty almost unimaginable. Herod's hand is not stayed even when it comes to the littlest of his own supposed subjects in Bethlehem. Nature tells him to do otherwise. You see that? But his mouth against Christ has so subverted him, so subverted even those natural draws that God had implanted and by His grace had preserved even after the fall to some extent. It has undone all. Christian, it's important for us to be mindful of this, isn't it? As long as men reject Christ, there will be no peace. And even on the most fundamental level, Humanity will be riven with conflict until they submit to the scepter of Christ. Beloved, any peace that the world conjures is fleeting and really a shadow. This is the kind of thing that the world does. Let me put it more pointedly. Beloved, take away all of the nuclear arms that the world has at its disposal. Take every single firearm away from every single man. Take away every sharp object. Take away all the instruments of destruction that we have used against each other. Take them all away. And ask, would there still be murder? Would there still be violence? The answer indubitably is yes. 
We have world leaders right now who are meeting, talking a lot about world peace. But friend, in light of the text that we have in front of us, you and I should know that all of those talks ultimately are futile. All of them. Until they have submitted to the scepter of Christ, the sword remains. And if you think, beloved, if you think just for a moment, that because we have now somehow progressed into a point of religious toleration that's widely known throughout the world, if you think that by putting away religious religious concerns and conflicts have really led us to betterment, let me just remind you of the cruelty of the last century. That was whenever the world said we finally become enlightened. We, we can put away all of those religious conflicts and society will be bettered. The last century was by far, according to any historian's account, the most cruel in world history. With the rise of theological liberalism and the rise of secularism, there was no promised world peace. In fact, the sword came down harder. The destruction became far more pronounced. That's the kind of peace that the world can expect as long as they remain outside of Christ. These acts of cruelty that you see in Matthew 2 are commonplace in a world that still refuses the Lord Jesus and would still make him an exile in their own land. This is what the text holds out to us. When nations rebel against Christ, when usurpers would take Christ's scepter from his own hand, No one is safe. None. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, there is that third aspect that you can't miss. And that is that not only is it the case that Herod, in his hatred against Christ, is committing soul-destroying acts, is really rending the fabric of of his own station, you find here that he is waging war against saints. And I'm not referring to those who, who were killed by his own soldiers. I'm referring to how the gospel writer himself puts it. He describes the one who is weeping here, not the infants. But he describes the one who is weeping here as Rachel. Rachel, who, who was buried, of course, in Bethlehem. Rachel, who, of course, was the mother of Benjamin, in whose territory Bethlehem fell. But Rachel, as she stands there as the voice of the church, Rachel, as she personifies the cries of God's people, and you can't miss in this text that what the the gospel writer is saying is, this is an affliction that came upon Rachel. Rachel, not the person, but Rachel as she is the church. But isn't it striking then that all of this affliction, all of this pain that she experiences, comes from the hand of Esau, of an Edomite. Jacob's wife is mourning as Esau has slain her children. It's a striking thing, isn't it? Things are not as they ought to be. Things are not as they ought to be at all. 
Jacob's wife is oppressed by an Edomite. And so, beloved, as you look at this text, you see here pointedly, don't you, that obviously the world's hatred for Christ is the basis of persecution. Christ gives us the reasons for this. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. He reasons thus, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And ultimately the reason for this persecution is the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. What we read in Matthew 10. Beloved, when you see the church of Jesus Christ persecuted, when you see when you see the kinds of affliction from the wicked that you see in our text even this morning, we're supposed to trace it back to its source. It's not misunderstanding. It's not a valiant attempt to preserve some kind of social order. It is hatred against Christ. This is how his own people would have them see it. And beloved, you see then, you see then in John 16, how, I think perplexing perhaps is is not the right word, how staggering, how staggering it is that out of hatred for Christ, the wicked will persecute the people of God and yet think that they do God's service. John 16, 2. You see that, don't you, of course, in the scriptures, but you see it right throughout human history. There is a way to hate Christ. There is a way to harbor malice for Christ and to persecute his people, and yet to think that all the while you are actually serving him. Why do you think, beloved, the world is so keen to redefine the cause of Christ? Why do, you think, why do you think the world is so keen? Even atheists are so interested in telling us what Christ would or would not want us to do. Why do you think the world is so preoccupied with, with telling us what really Christ was like? That he, was in, that he would be entirely comfortable with, with their wickedness and would encourage us only to pursue that kind of peace which the world can procure. Well, I want you to understand that's not just theological liberalism. That's, that's, not some kind of, that's not some kind of acerbic work for the theologian to do in his, own, in his own office in some university. That has vast implications. Because when the world upon that basis will come after faithful Christians, they will say, we are simply doing what Jesus would have us do. When we pursue the radicals, when we pursue those who would say that the scriptures are our final authority, well, all that we are doing is we are saying that the Christian is very different than the Christ. And really, we are more like Christ than they. Well, but you should see in the world today, if we were thinking spiritually, you should see these kinds of redefinitions as truly nefarious. Really laying the bedrock for that kind of person persecution which would lead men to believe that killing us would be doing service to God. But as we close, Christian, 
There is something in this text that is for the incredible comfort of Rachel, of the people of God. I want you to notice, if you look at Jeremiah 31, as we read it, the words, as Matthew records them, are given to us in verse 15. But in verse 16, you have the striking phrase, Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears. As the writer in the first century would quote Jeremiah 31, most certainly, and even in extra-biblical literature, this was a text that was very well known to anyone, any Jew. But note that he quotes just the 15th verse. The 15th verse is the weeping of Rachel. But the 16th verse, in its context, is inseparable to the 15th. In other words, the weeping of Rachel is inextricably tied to the command for Rachel to refrain her voice from weeping and her eyes from tears. Now, why is that? There, in Jeremiah 31, you remember the prophet is looking both to his own time and he's looking to the new covenant age. And he's saying that there is actually cause for rejoicing. That the Lord God will actually bring His people back. That there will be revival in the church. That repentance will be sent. That a new covenant will be made. What's striking is Matthew does not cite verse 16. Instead, he goes in the very next verse to describe the death of Herod and the command. Take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. If you and I were reading this in the first century, what would we make of that? Beloved, I think our older commentators are right to assume that our first thought would be Matthew is telling us why the church need not weep without end. That Matthew is telling us pointedly how Rachel will ultimately be consoled. That notwithstanding the afflictions she faces under the hand of an Edomite, yet the church has reason to look and reason to look with confidence that she will have her tears stayed, her sobs silenced. And the answer is Christ himself. Why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Christ could say. Beloved, the church in the first century faced all kinds of affliction, suffered all kinds of loss, and all kinds of loss, even as we've seen, because men have hated Christ. But what did the church have? She has Christ himself as her portion and her lot. The one who is fairer than the sons of men. The one who is greater than 10,000. And beloved, what we learn from this text, we learn from this text is that the church, she gets even more than she lost. Because she has Christ. Rachel need not weep forever. 
The afflicted church need not be sorrowful forever. Her Christ, who is better to her than all that she has lost, is hers and hers securely. And so Rachel will not, will not weep forever. Her voice will be refrained. Her tears will be taken from her eyes. And all because she has Christ. Beloved, as we close, there is an exhortation from this text, and that is, you and I are to make much of sin. Herod was a monster, and we understand that he was a monster, but do you and I really realize that the monstrosities that he committed, the atrocities that we read in our our text, came from a heart that is very much like our own by nature? Are you mindful of that, Christian, this morning? Can you read an account like this, even this morning, and find yourself and a likeness with your own, in your own heart with his? This should teach us that all sin is violent. And in the heart of the natural man, all kinds of violence are possible. And that because he is a hater of God by nature. But when we look at violence in the world, this also teaches us to trace it back to its source. This violence is because men are born depraved. And this violence is because men have refused to lay hold of Christ. We should always, beloved, when we look at the news, when we see it in the streets, see it in these lights. This is because of sin. And in the case of an enlightened land as ours is, this is in the case of a land that has rejected a Christ who has been offered to them. Never divorce the cause from its its effect. But thirdly and finally, beloved, this is a call to lay hold of Christ. Yes, the people of God will encounter all kinds of affliction. But as we've just found, their weeping will know an end date. Their sorrows will be expired. And all through, and all because of Jesus Christ. The Christian even persecuted. The Christian even bereft of her children. The Christian is still the one who gains most. Because she has Christ. May the Lord lead us to take hold of him afresh this morning. Amen.